Well, good morning, everybody. Morning. As uh, Dustin said, my name's Aaron. Uh, for those who don't know me, uh, I'm a longtime member here at Refuge, one of our community group leaders. Uh, very thankful every chance I get to uh, bring the word <laughs> uh, here here with us this morning and uh, worship together with you in this particular way. Uh, this morning we are continuing our series in the book of James, and today we're going to be in James chapter one, verses nine through eighteen. So what we're going to do here is is we're going to read the whole passage first. And then I'm going to talk at you a little bit, and then, um, and then we'll be out the door um, after a, a really important um, update from Dustin about just the state of life here at Refuge. Uh, so let's begin uh, with verse 9. Uh, and I'll be reading from the CSB translation. If you've got another translation with you, like the ESV, uh, you'll see a few words are a little bit different, but the, mess- the meaning is always the same. So uh, here we go. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials because he has stood the test, uh, because he who has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brother and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. That's God's word. So when we read these verses in James, it can be tempting to read them all as a series of of disconnected pieces of wisdom, of these these general truths. Um, After all, I mean, James' epistle functions very much in a a similar way as uh, essentially the wisdom literature of the New Testament, um, while still operating as a specific message to a specific group of believers, it carries that a similar weight, a stylistic flavor um, to the book of Proverbs itself. But even so, just as in that book, there are recurring mega themes of wisdom and godliness, so too must we remember that these nine verses were written not as abstract thoughts disconnected from what came before them. And so if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, uh, you've seen how the opening verses offer us an exhortation about the purpose of trials and their role in growing us into mature godliness. And God's great joy and willingness to give us wisdom in times of difficulty so that we might understand his purpose and grow into godliness as a result. And in a very practical sense, 
verses 9 through 18 double down on those themes with kind of a boots-on-the-ground outworking of, of what has been discussed previously. In other words, they are essentially the how of verses 1 through 8's why. And so here's the big idea that, that I believe God wants us to focus on this morning as we seek to put our boots on the ground um, and, and work th- and pursue maturity together. And that is that as our faith is tested and as we grow in wisdom from the Lord, we will, we will focus less on outward circumstances, more on our future reward and on our, and God's purpose for us in the world. So let's pray and then we're going we're gonna to break that down. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true, that it is helpful, that it is t- always timely, even as it is timeless, that your wisdom is always exactly what we need in the moment. Father, help us all to hear what you have for us today um, so that we can f- more fully grow into the likeness of Christ just a little bit today and each day going forward. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So let's go back to verse 9 for a minute. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. And so in these verses, James is addressing a perennial issue, our relationship to wealth. And really, the, the conflict that, that, can, that can appear between those who are materially poor and those who are of, me, of means. But it's not just about wealth. It's about our circumstances as a whole. The poor, he says, have cause to boast. Because uh, they, have a, they have a reason to be proud in a very godly sense, which sounds strange because we normally think of pride as, as being a sin, but there is a way in which we are called to boast um, in a godly way. And it's because they have a special place in God's kingdom. They know that all they have is from God. They don't hear the words of Jesus' example of how to pray saying, give us today our daily bread as a mere truism or as a, something nice that we like to say but we don't really mean. It's actually a way of life. Every day, every moment, at all times is lived by faith. And this is the faith of actually the majority world. Not just throughout history, um, and, and, not, and the majority church as well, not just through history, but in places all, all around us, places that aren't the West. Places like Ethiopia, Nicaragua, Haiti, Honduras, El Salvador, China, dozens of other nations. That's what faith looks like right now. It's the kind of faith that looks at, the, at their circumstances as an opportunity to boast in God and in his provision, to glorify him with great joy in all things. And because we live in an incredibly affluent society, 
because we live in a part of the world where that isn't normal for us. To our cultural ears, that seems so strange because we live in a society where the wealthy are exalted. There are cultural icons whether they became wealthy through their ingenuity, through their, their abilities, or just good old-fashioned dumb luck. Think about it. Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Elon Musk. These guys all have different stories of how they gained wealth, whether it's by creating an e-commerce monster in a garage or... or um, inheriting wealth from an emerald mine. But they're all primarily known to us today for one reason and one reason only. They're really weird rich guys who built themselves spaceships. But we still esteem them, even though they're really weird rich guys who built spaceships. We still exalt them. We kind of want to be like them because, let's be honest, if we were as insanely wealthy as them we'd probably build ourselves spaceships too. Because it sounds kind of fun. But it's not, but this is the thing. The reason that I, that, I, that I talked about the majority church and the majority world is we have to remember that when God's word is talking about the wealthy and the poor, it's not inviting us to compare ourselves to those really weird rich guys. He's, he's inviting us to look at ourselves to remember that in context, we are the wealthy. We are the rich, comparatively. The pro- and the promise of wealth truly is the great hope of American society. Certainly, it's the value that, that our society has been built on for the last century, It's the goal that we're called to pursue. It's the promise of entrepreneurship that it's it's time for you to take charge of your financial future, to stop making money for someone else and to do it for yourself. It's the hope that's held out by lotteries and casinos that one big win, one big score is going to be the thing that changes your life. And it's even embedded in how we look at the church. That we look at assets and activities and attendance as the signs of God's blessing that a church is only being faithful if we have bigger buildings and bigger budgets and bigger attendance. Now here's the thing. Those things might be true, but they might not be. Sometimes people actually do have their lives changed positively through wealth some people do start, start businesses that take the world by storm. Some people do hit it big, even in Vegas. And I do not advocate for that because it's not a good idea. Um, and some churches really do see these kinds of measurable signs of growth because they're simply being faithful to what God has called them to do. But for every instance where these things might be true, there are many examples of failure. People who lost everything trying to get their big idea off the ground. Or after an initial success, they they flamed out or or were revealed to be frauds. There are people who have gone into ruin because they were sure that the big win was just one more play away. 
And sadly, we've all heard more than our fair share of stories of churches where their apparent good fruit was actually revealed to be rotten. What we think of as success may not actually be. Because as James says, wealth doesn't last. It evaporates overnight. Trusting in it will always fail us. But God never fails. And so growing in wisdom means that we focus less on our circumstances. Because God never fails, it means that he is always here. It means that he always cares. It means that he is always helping those who cannot help themselves. So what does that mean for us personally and collectively as Refuge Church? Well, let's think about a couple of things here. So personally, whether we are contextually financially affluent or we have more month than money at the end of every pay, let's refuse to play the comparison game, the one that society and our particular zip code want us to play. We aren't defined by what our neighbors, how our neighbors live in Williamson County or surrounding counties. We're not defined by our, by the, by our bank account, and we're not defined by what is and is not in our 401k. We are defined by our creator as being made in his image, worthy of dignity and respect. Rich or poor, that is who we are full stop. There's nothing that needs to be added to that. But if we are in Christ, we're not simply his image bearers worthy of dignity and respect. If we are in Christ, if we have been saved from our sins through the life, substitutionary death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are defined as his beloved children. And as we'll see in a moment, a kind of first fruits of his purposes in the world. Rich or poor, if we believe in Jesus, that is who we are. Full stop. Let that define who you are. Not your circumstances, not what you're experiencing at this particular moment. Nothing else defines us except for that. And while Thinking about finances while being a wise steward of what God's entrusted to us is a virtue, something that is advocated for in Scripture. Increased wealth isn't necessarily a sign of God's blessing. It's possible that we can put our identity in the wrong place to find value in what moths will destroy, as, um, than, more so than in the one who provides for our every need. So that's us personally. As individuals, we need to not focus on our circumstances, but we need to focus on who God says we are. And as a church, it's tempting to focus on what we don't have or what's unknown. The programs we do and don't offer, the facilities, attendance, all of these things that we look at and are tempted to see as signs of blessing out in the church culture. These things aren't what define us. If we are a church of disciples who are making disciples to the glory of God, we don't need to worry about all those things really at all. God, for, for example, 
we meet, in, we meet in an elementary school. Would it be nice for us to have a permanent facility? Sure. God may have one down the road, uh, have one in mind down the road for us, or he may not. Would it be, would it be amazing to have um, a frighteningly shocking amount of people? Sure. God may have that in mind, but he may not. We don't know. But here's what we do know. What we focus on as individuals and as a church defines who we become. Our concerns shape our identity. And what God wants us all to focus on is one thing, the mission that he's called us to, the mission all Christians through time and space and history have been called to, to be disciples who are making disciples to his glory and to trust him with all the rest, to meet all the needs that arise along the way. So let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. Rich or poor, growing in wisdom means that we are going to focus less on our circumstances. And if that's true, if we're not supposed to be focusing on our circumstances, if we are not to see our apparent wealth as anything but temporary, and if we are not to see humble circumstances as anything but an opportunity to boast in God and glorify him, well, what are we supposed to do then? Well, we see this in verse 12 and following. So listen to this. Blessed is the one who endures trials because he has stood the, uh, because when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him so James picks up this theme of trials that began the, the epistle uh, back in verses two and three giving us not just the purpose of our trials to help us grow into maturity but to give us hope as we endure them and so this is what we learn, that growing in wisdom means that we're going to focus less on our present circumstances and more on our future reward. Blessed is the one who endures trials, he says, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So what James is getting at here is that just as trials have a purpose, they also have a promise. That promise is eternal life with Jesus, the life that we are given through faith in Jesus. This is a theme that shows up repeatedly in the New Testament as Christians are called to endure trials of various kinds. For example, Paul wrote in Romans 8.18 that he considered that, all, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And the letters to the churches of, in Revelation are filled with challenges and encouragements to endure. In fact, the, the letter to the church at Smyrna actually talks about the same crown of life. This is the language of the Christian faith. That if we are followers of Jesus, that we're going to experience trials. And we are called to endure them. The trial is guaranteed. But so is the promise. So is the reward. And so that's why we need that because when we experience trials, we, keep, we find ourselves asking the question, what's going to help us endure? Where are we, and, and we need to know where we're putting our hope 
to be able to have the answer. So think back to verses 9 and 11. Both the poor and the wealthy described were and are enduring different kinds of trials. The poor were enduring the trial of poverty. That's a real trial. Contextually here, it's a real trial here. Um, I've been on both sides of that, of that spectrum. Um, and while by no means comparatively wealthy, um, it's weird to actually be able to pay your bills. Um, but there was a time when Emily and I, we were so broke, we had to choose, we had to choose a day when we could actually buy groceries. We lived below the poverty line in Canada for, for about a decade and didn't know it. So we're familiar with that. The other, the other kind of, the other group though, the wealthy, they, they slash we endure the trial that comes with wealth, which is really self-sufficiency of placing our hope and our trust in our money and our possessions. And both groups need the same hope that allow them to persevere, the hope of eternal life with Jesus, the promise of eternal life with Jesus. To see our sufferings, whether they are, whether they are out of extreme lack or out of, our, out of our great abundance, to see those challenges that we experience as momentary afflictions we need, we need the promise of something better to do that, something truer to make the enduring worthwhile, to forsake materialism and live the open-handed life that Christians are called to. We need the promise of something better and more fulfilling than what our stuff can offer. But understanding all of that takes this kind of maturity. It takes wisdom and so we want to grow in that wisdom because when we do, we'll focus less on our circumstances and more on our future reward. And we need to see that, kind, and we need that kind of wisdom because we can so easily deceive ourselves when we're experiencing trials of various kinds. And that's what James gets to as he warns us um, in verse 13. That no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed with his own evil desire. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is, is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And so when we're undergoing trials, we can, we can naturally want to ask how God is involved. And that necessarily isn't a wrong question, because I mean, who hasn't asked, God, what's, why is this happening? But there's a turn that can happen, which is we can start to ask, God, why are you doing this? And there's a right and wrong way to look at how to answer that question, which is what James is getting at here. It's what he's trying to teach us. It's not wrong to wonder what God is doing in the midst of trials. It's actually very right because trying to see what God's purpose is in, in a trial helps us to grow in wisdom and helps us to endure and helps us to look forward, uh, look forward to our future reward. Those things, uh, those are good and even holy questions to be asking uh, as, we, as we seek to in, endure. Because ultimately, God's purpose in our trials is 
that our faith will be tested and will be purified, that we will be made more like Jesus as a result of them. But James is overtly warning against a different kind of question here, one that twists God's testing of our faith and allows an allowance of trials into seeing God as tempting us into sin. And that's something that James wants to stamp down pretty quickly, uh, which he does by contrasting God's nature with humanity's. And so here's what he says, essentially. He says, God doesn't tempt anyone to sin because God can't be tempted to sin. God only acts in accordance with his nature and his character. And that's what he wants us to know, and that's what we need to understand, especially when we experience trials of many kinds. And probably the best way that, to understand that um, is uh, to think about a gotcha question. Okay, so gotcha questions. These are these ones that people like to ask as a trap um, uh, to reveal the inc- or to reveal an inconsistency in a point of view. So you might have heard one that this gets used in, in uh, apologetics arguments a lot, which is this. If God is really all powerful, could he create a rock so big that he couldn't move it? And what's the answer to that? I mean, if, as, the, as the, the children's song goes, my God is so big, so strong, and so muddy, mighty, and there's nothing my God cannot do, uh, feel free to clap, uh, as, uh, then the answer should be yes, right? That's what we've been taught by the song. But the answer is no. God is so big and so strong and so mighty, but there's actually plenty of things that he cannot do. And key to understanding that is to understand what James has just told us, that God cannot act outside of his nature and character. God cannot be anything but God. He cannot make a rock so big that he can't move it because if he couldn't move it, then he would no longer be God. And so back to trials and temptations, God doesn't tempt anyone to sin because God himself cannot be tempted by evil. God is holy, sinless, perfect. He is utterly and completely incapable of committing sin in any way, which means that he cannot tempt anyone to sin either. But when we're in the midst of the trial, we have these, these moments where we're tempted to sin, even if it's just for a second, even if it's just to question God's goodness in it. But that, James says, isn't God's doing. That's our nature. That's our in- instincts and our inclinations because our hearts are bent toward sin, bent toward rebellion against God. And we need to know this because if we don't, our sin grows and it festers and it ultimately destroys us, causing us to lose sight of the future reward that we will receive through our endurance and of God's purposes for us in the world, which is what we see in the next portion of our passage. So listen to verses 16 through 18. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
So here's how James turns the conversation. Far from being the source of sin and temptation, God himself is the source of every good and perfect gift. The unchanging God, who is always good and perfect and holy, always gives good gifts to his people. In other words, James uh, is saying that even when everything else is a complete disaster, when your life seems to be, as uh, one political commentator once said, a hot mess inside of a dumpster fire, inside of a train wreck, your life is not hopeless because of Jesus. Because Jesus is with us. God is here. God is at work. God is at work for your good. And if you ever had any doubt of that, Jesus is the supreme example of that. The gospel is the supreme example of his goodness. That God gave us, uh, gave us birth by the word of truth so that he, we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That we have been, by faith in Jesus, given new life, born again as new creations through the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world. God the Son came into the world, lived a perfect life as one of us, died in our place for our sins, and rose again from death, all according to the scriptures. That is the good news that he gives us. It's a good that is so good that it cannot be manufactured through any sort of human ingenuity. It's a good that comes with a purpose to demonstrate the goodness of God in this world as evidence of his goodness in how we endure our trials. Enduring is people with a sure hope that cannot be taken away because the one who gives us that hope does not and cannot ever change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is really, really good news for us. Now this good news, this good gift of the gospel what makes this so great is that this is a good gift that's available to anyone. Anyone, anywhere, at any time, in any circumstances can receive this good gift. The gift of the forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future, through faith in Jesus. And in just a minute, we're going to be taking communion as a church, which is a time where we remember the death of Jesus as we wait for his return, for the time when, for the time when our need for endurance has reached its end, when the future reward that awaits us becomes our present reality. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, if you've put your faith in Jesus and been baptized, come and take the elements with gladness. Do so boasting in God and his provision for you. And if you're here and you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, if you've not put your faith in him, just hang, you know what, hang back and let's talk. But whether you're here and you're not sure where you stand on Jesus, or you're here and you've had a pretty good day, week, or even maybe just the last five minutes, um, or, uh, your, or this past week has been a complete and utter dumpster fire 
of trial and you're wondering today, right now, if God even cares, remember, all that is good in this world, all that we see and experience, all of it ultimately comes from God, the one who is truly and perfectly good. And he has a good purpose for us in this world to ultimately help people see his goodness for what it is. And so as we grow in wisdom, let's embrace that good purpose with joy. Friends, we, we're living in a time when there is no shortage of trials. And every day is a fresh reminder that we need wisdom to endure them, to grow into maturity. And so as our faith is tested and as we grow in wisdom from the Lord, may we focus less on our circumstances. May we focus more on our future reward and may we focus on God's purpose for us in this world as we've been called to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your unchanging nature. Thank you that you are always truly good and perfect and that you give every good gift to your children and to this world. God, I pray that you would help us to grow into in maturity, to think this way, to think less on our circumstances so that we can focus more on what you've called us to do in this time and in this moment for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name.